we saw how quickly folks got active and excited and all of a sudden you know they changed their profile picture back you know they put they started posting pictures of dogs and memes <laughs> they started reading another book on the new york times bestseller list um and they started they, they moved on right so i do think in many ways uh uh, we hit, we made some jumps, but we kind of got comfortable there, right? And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This is year 17 in the classroom for me. And this, of course, is all of the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. We want to shout out everybody that might be listening to us for the first time or watching us on YouTube for the very first time. Uh, welcome to all of the above. And we hope you appreciate what you see or what you hear. And if so, we, we hope you consider giving us that thumbs up or that five-star review because that goes a long way. Now, Jeff, it is mid-April. We are in the final stretch of what seems like the never-ending school year, man. How are you holding up? Oh, man, that's a dangerous question, Manuel. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm here, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes. Uh, I'm, I'm here. That's, uh, <laughs> that's where I am right now. It is getting hectic out here uh, on the schools here in Los Angeles with, um, you know, the, the shift from distance learning to hybrid. And, yeah. You know, and then the kind of uncertainty around what's going to happen with testing is just, it's stressful, man. It's, a, it's been a tough year. It has been an incredibly tough year. So shout out to all of you educators and, and parents of kids who are in schools and, and everybody, because this year, this school year has been incredibly difficult. I, for one, am counting down to summer like I've never counted down before. And it's, I, I love my job. I love my students. But this year... This year has just been tough, and I need a break. Um, in any case, Jeff, there's there's so much going on in education, above and beyond reopening and hybrid schooling and all of that. So for this episode here, what is on the agenda? Well, Manuel, we got a good one for everybody, as usual. And I'm very excited to say that we are bringing back uh, just an incredible guest who we had on almost a year ago um, now. And, uh, you know, somebody who I think is just a powerful voice in education, someone who is a school leader, um, but who speaks with a level of frankness about the important work around leading uh, for anti-racism in his school and more broadly um, in a way that is just refreshing. And um, that is none other than Joe Truss. Um, he is a principal up in San Francisco Unified, middle school principal and also leads on the side. I mean, this man is a, is a grinder, has <laughs> two jobs and then some, um, but is a person who uh, has been conducting trainings, conferences, uh, you know, really reaching educators across the country over the last year. Um, and uh, he's gonna be back with us today to talk, uh, you know, some reflecting on what he's seen and what we've experienced over this last year, but also some looking ahead and kind of what, you know, what, what's the terrain ahead? What are the next steps for dismantling white supremacy culture in American schools? Dope. Joe Truss back in the building for sure. Can't wait for that conversation. But at first, we have our Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. 
All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at some recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, today we have a lexicon for folks. We're going to uh, get into some vocabulary, some good verbiage for the people. Nice, nice. Got to get that vocab up, Jeff. Learning That's loss. Right. You know, kids yeah. are at home. They're not <laughs> learning any words like, oh, at all. God. Oh God, so. man! Well, can we can we have a moratorium on the use no, of the word? No, no, Jeff. On the use of the term "learning loss" from no, Jeff. From We're now until forever, on, on all the above. I'm so tired of hearing about the learning loss, man. <laughs> <sighs> I'm with you, man. I am with you, and I think our our listeners and viewers are with you as well. We know that this stuff is being weaponized, and we are concerned about what the outcome is going to be. But in any case. Let's learn, let's, let's learn some new vocab terms for today, Jeff. And the first term we have is um, whatevs. <laughs> whatevs, nice. How, how millennial of you, uh, Manuel? Um, is that spelled uh, W-U-T-E-V-Z, whatevs? I've never seen it spelled that way, Jeff, but why not? Why not? Okay. We could reimagine <laughs> spelling of something like whatevs. But in this case, whatevs is in reference to how a growing number of Americans feel about the importance of democracy. Mm. So yeah, yeah, let's get into it. Now we got this story by way of Harvard Magazine in an article authored by Spencer Lee Lenfield. And he reports that last year's Annenberg Public Policy Center survey on civic knowledge found that barely half of American adults can name all three branches of government and 20% can't name any of the rights protected in the First Amendment. And the thing about it is that these figures signal an improvement over previous years. A separate survey found that since the 1950s, fewer and fewer people within each birth cohort in the U.S. has ranked it, quote, essential to live in a democratically governed country. Not even one third of Americans born in the 80s think democracy is vital. This brings us to a new, a new report out of Harvard that shows that this may be in part due to a lack of investment in history and civic education. Federal spending per pupil in these subjects averages about a nickel, whereas STEM education per pupil averages $50. That's a thousandfold difference in funding allocation, at least when we look at federal spending. The Harvard report, which is titled Educating for American Democracy asserts that civic education needs massive investments of personnel, funding, attention, and energy in order to end what they call a crisis threatening the future of the American democratic experiment. Now, these authors offer a roadmap for addressing this problem, and included in the roadmap are suggestions or requests for schools to integrate the teaching of history and civics into a complementary curriculum instead of just like a one-off, one-semester course in government, for example. Um, they ask that states, districts, and teachers shift from breadth to depth when it comes to the teaching of history and civics. They also recommend that teachers teach how to cultivate civil disagreement and reflective patriotism. And they also recommend that all levels of government should work together to enlarge and continuously support the nation's core of history and civics teachers. And in fact, they propose an ambitious goal of one million civics teachers by the year 2030. So Jeff, civics education, front and center, especially in the wake of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. What do you think about this, this roadmap in this, this 
perhaps crisis facing American democracy? Yeah, I have actually a, a range of feelings on, on this article that, that uh, stretch from word, I'm so glad they're talking about this, to nah, I ain't about that at all. So <laughs> let, me, let me start with the word side of the spectrum here, which is, yes, we need so much investment um, in the teaching of social studies, in the teaching of government and civics in a way that we have completely devalued, or I shouldn't say completely, but we have, to a significant extent, particularly in the early grades, we have devalued, because most places around the country that I'm familiar with have, have had a high school requirement around government or civics and economics um, on the books for a long time, right? And even many middle school, uh, many states at the middle school level at least have some you know, formalized teaching of US history that includes government and civics. It's at the elementary level where that stuff has gone totally out the window and the high school requirements are insufficient to the task of really equipping people to be you know, informed citizens about how does the government work around you. And even that you know, inadequate <laughs> teaching that we have had to date primarily tends to focus on our federal government and sort of completely washes over state and local government, um, you know, uh, relatively speaking, at least. So um, from the standpoint of like a call to arms around the teaching of, of government and civics, yes, I'm here for it. I fully agree. Let's invest in, let's hire a bunch of teachers. Let's train a bunch of teachers. Let's expand the role of this in the curriculum. It's vital. I 100% agree. I'm biased. I used to teach <laughs> government. <laughs> that was my favorite <laughs> thing to teach. So of course, I agree with this, but also I think they're very compelling arguments that they speak to in here about like, you know, if we want a country that that continues to try to be a democracy, we need to value it in education and we have not nearly enough um, in our field. So on that level, I'm here for it. Let's go. Now, on the other end of the spectrum here, Manuel, some of the phrases they use in here, like I forget now exactly what it was around um, patriotism, right? Um, Reflective patriotism. I don't know what reflective patriotism means, but I can feel very confident in saying that is not the phrase that I think <laughs> needs to be driving um, our teaching of government and civics. We are not in the business of you know training kids about how wonderful and perfect America is, okay? So we need to teach about how our government works and we need to teach an honest history about what that government has done. Okay, so you want to talk about the Constitution? Great. I love talking about the Constitution. It is a fascinating historical document that has some important, uh, you know, uh, uh, value globally as one of the earliest examples of a modern nation state that had some version of democracy instilled, right? Particularly at a time when like feudalism and monarchy were, you know, were perhaps more the, the dominant global political structures um, in place. That said, that same U.S. Constitution gives no rights to women whatsoever, enshrines African-Americans um, as three-fifths of a human being in terms of how we should be counted um, in the system, allows for the continuation of slavery and says we're not going to talk about slavery for decades, right? Um, and, you know, does all kinds of other <laughs> things that uh, disenfranchise poor people, 
the disenfranchised, uneducated people that empowers, you know, the wealthy elite with the ability to, you know, make all kinds of decisions for everyone else in ways that we actually, to some extent, undid with <laughs> with further amendments, like allowing for the direct election of senators, which was not part of the original Constitution. So the Constitution is also a horribly flawed document, and we need to teach history um, with that type of critical understanding. They're like, yes, there are good things that happen, and also here's how it perpetuated and props up a system of racism, predatory capitalism, patriarchy, etc. If we're not doing that, which is definitely something different than reflective patriotism, we are perpetuating these inequities. And I, so on this level, I'm like, yeah, we can't be about it. I'd rather we just not spend the money on uh, you know on on teaching government and civics, then spend all the money and have it prop up the type of white supremacist nonsense that's driven the history of this country and that results in these lunatics storming the Capitol on January sixth. So um, yes, I agree, but these folks need to like take an ethnic studies class and then come back to the table and and have this conversation right here. That's that's how I'm feeling about it. Well, Jeff, you said two things there that I want to address. I'm I'm. Throwing aside my my prepared reaction and instead going to address the fact that you are questioning reflective patriotism. Jeff, that's when you take a selfie with the American flag and you post it to own the libs. How do you not know about that? Come on, Jeff. You gotta own the libs. That's what it is. Nice. nice. Secondly, okay. you said that the Constitution is a horribly flawed document. And that right there, from an educator yourself, that's a phrase that is becoming increasingly, increasingly outlawed in different areas of the country where we see state houses rapidly passing legislation that bans the 1619 project, that bans a critical view of teaching history. And a phrase like that is something that a lot of lawmakers, well, let's be honest, a lot of Republican lawmakers want to make illegal for teachers to utter. And if you are in certain parts of the country and you are helping students understand the flaws embedded within the Constitution, um, you're going to have more and more parents calling in saying that this liberal teacher is trying to indoctrinate my student. And I believe they're a Marxist. They critical race theory, something, something, whatever word mush and get rid of them. And I think that's really the big danger that we're facing. And I don't know necessarily that this report addressed what needs to be done to help combat the efforts being made by Republican legislatures across the country to ban a uh, 1619 project and critical view of history. Because if that's the case, then we're just, I mean, you could throw all the money in the world at it, but if you're not allowing educators to help students understand the systems in place that have created their current co context and the current climate that we have, then you're not really gonna get very far. I do find it hilarious, just hilarious that like, federal spending on civics and history is a nickel, like a, like a nickel, we can't even get a dime per pupil. <laughs> and STEM education is $50. Uh, um, yeah, I think that speaks to the difference in opinion about the purpose of education. I think no matter what a lot of educators and policymakers say, I think just embedded in how we go about education is this belief that education is to prepare you for career. Uh, we say college and career, but college in order to get to a career. And with so much focus on STEM, and of course we talked about STEM education in our previous episode, um, that's why we see so many dollars going towards STEM. And then when students are saying that they're gonna go to college and major in English or history, and folks are like, oh, what are you gonna do with that? What are you gonna do with that? Um, so there's this belief that education really isn't about upholding democracy. It's really about preparing students to be part of this massive global capitalist structure and get jobs and keep it moving. 
I don't know that more history teachers or more funding of you know civics instruction is really going to address the root problem here, which we saw on January 6th, which is not necessarily that people don't know what rights are in the First Amendment or that they don't know what the three branches of government are. I think the fundamental problem is that people don't believe that stuff is for a increasingly diverse America. A lot of folks, mm -hmm. they love democracy as long as it's reserved for those traditionally in power. And as more groups speak up and claim those rights, then all of a sudden it's like, uh, maybe authoritarianism is a better way to go because we want someone that's going to uphold our traditional ways of life. So yeah, I'm I'm with you a thousand percent. That reflective patriotism is just like that. I read that and I was like, I don't sound good, really. Yeah. I don't. It's not a phrase that that makes me feel good about where where this roadmap might go. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, the, the school of thought that likes the term reflective patriotism is the same school of thought that, that has been making the case that America was, you know, was post-racial because Obama got elected and, and now is maybe post-racial again because Kamala's in the, you know, in the in the vice president's mansion. So uh, it's it's a ridiculous uh, thought process on its face, I would I would argue, um, without much real historical merit. Um, that said, you know, you raised something there that was also in this article that was that was fascinating. And I, I think the data set around Americans and younger Americans seeing democracy as, you know, sort of um, less valuable of a thing in terms of a political system is really fascinating. And I actually, you know, I have not done research on this, but my anecdotal sense and the argument I would make is that I think they're actually missing what people are communicating in their responses to those survey questions, which is not that people don't see the value in democracy, but is that people don't see the value in America's political system, which is most decidedly not a democracy. And is something, uh, you know, uh, verging closer to some type of oligarchic authoritarian system, um, more so than it is a democracy. We live in a society where on any number of social issues, the overwhelming majority of the public supports one thing, whether that's on healthcare or gun control or you know whatever it may be, but we don't get policy that reflects anywhere near what people actually want and believe in, right? Um, and so what people are expressing, I would argue with that, with that data, especially young people, is that they don't see hope in our current political system. And we call our current political system a democracy, so that's what they're thinking of. But the reality is there are better versions of democracy that we could aspire to and actually meet the needs of people and not just the needs of you know the wealthy and, and corporations um, that I think would have a radical difference in how people might respond to that question um, you know, if, if what they got from a government was actual democracy, right? To prioritize the interests of people rather than, you know, this, this corrupted thing we have right now. So, you know, I don't know that that data set is suggesting the critical mass of young people is like, whatever, it's time for fascism. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I remain unconvinced that that's what that data suggests, but there's some risk, <laughs> you know, when people start thinking that, well, democracy doesn't work that opens up the door to some pretty dangerous stuff. And so I, I think from that perspective, it is alarming to, to hear that data, especially from young folks. Yes, yeah, it's, it's certainly alarming, certainly troubling. And I don't know, I'm, we definitely have to have, 
as an education system, we have to have a coming to terms with what history and civics instruction looks like, particularly in light of the January 6th insurrection. I just, I feel like we're going backwards on that front though, because it seems like every day when I read through the news, I see another story about some some house in some uh, state capital somewhere passing a bill to, again, outlaw this, outlaw that when it comes to teaching of honest history. And I think really we could look at California and how muddled the process of the ethnic studies model curriculum was and see how many folks simply do not want their schools or schools period educating students about these rich histories and about the need for solidarity in the face of oppression. And a lot of folks just don't want any of that. And I think we need to really come to terms with how are we going to resist this pressure, this this right-wing backlash to the the summer um, uprisings for racial justice and this, this right-wing backlash to folks actually like bringing up the fact that, well, American history traditionally has been taught in a very narrow and uh, largely dishonest lens. So yeah, we, we got some work to do, Jeff. Yeah. Got to raise that nickel at least to six, <laughs> seven cents a student. Maybe that'll, uh, that'll be enough funding to get this done. I don't know. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the good news is um, or I should say the bad news is this is the same problem we've been fighting and educators have been fighting since since the beginning, right? Yeah. Since the Freedmen schools in the, you know, 1860s. And <laughs> the good news is this is the same problem we've, we've been fighting against since the 1860s. So one, we have some strategies that we can uh, fall back on. And two, we know what these people are about. We, we know the nature of the enemy and we can, you know, we can outwit them, right? And we yep. can, um, you know, shed truth in, in places where it needs to be, where it needs to be spoken. So uh, fascinating, fascinating story to, to kick off today's Do Now for sure. Yeah, show for show. All right, Jeff, what's the next term for today's lexicon? All right, man. Well, next up is the burbs. The burbs. That's right. You know, Jeff, I've heard that education is is fantastic and lovely in the suburbs. I I hear that suburban <laughs> schools are high performing and they're they're good schools. They're not like those uh, quote unquote urban inner city schools. So I'm sure this mm. is a story that's going to highlight the greatness of our suburban education system. Yes, I well, I think you are correct. I believe our our former president once said that uh, you know, MS13 is going to come to the suburbs and build housing projects and ruin ruin your beautiful suburbs. Um, I think I think that's the burbs we must be talking about, right? Yeah, we must be. Yeah, yes. we must be. I forgot yes. he was going to defend the burbs and now he's gone. Oh, wait, so is this story about how the burbs have fallen apart? It, 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 yes, it is about how MS-13 has come and is building housing projects in the suburbs. Um, no, unfortunately, uh, or maybe fortunately, uh, we are not talking uh, white supremacist imagination um, definition of the suburbs. We're talking the reality of the suburbs, which is actually the place that today not only does the majority of the American population live in the suburbs, but also the largest share of people of color in the United States also live in the suburbs or in small metropolitan areas now, which is a, a fascinating development. So here we go, let's dig in. Um, this story is by Gabriel Rodriguez in The Conversation, and Gabriel is an assistant professor at Iowa State University. So, you know, shout out to the Cyclones. Um, 
many Americans think of the suburbs as an exclusive enclave for white middle-class people. Yet, our reality today paints a different picture. In fact, since 2010, uh, most people in the United States, upwards of 175 million, including people of color, call suburbia or small metro areas home. One in four public school students in the United States, for example, today is Latino, with 40% of Latino students attending a suburban public school. Yet much of what researchers know about Latino students is based on urban schools. Rodriguez's research notes that Latino students face academic and social trade-offs in suburban schools. For example, students of color at predominantly white suburban schools must contend with opportunity hoarding, which is when those with privileged backgrounds build upon their advantages by accumulating even more of them. This could include things like test prep or extracurricular opportunities that are not necessarily equally available to all student groups. Latino high school students are sometimes viewed in those contexts as less capable by peers and teachers and wind up excluded from things like honors classes and endure frequent microaggressions. Another challenge that students in Rodriguez's research frequently cited was feeling like they had to downplay parts of their identities to fit in, uh, to fit in and succeed academically. Research highlights that this is a result of teachers and school leaders trying to change or fix Latino students and other students of color. So, Manuel, this is a just an interesting piece. I don't think we often get a lot of, um, you know, a lot of scholarship targeted at kind of understanding the experience of students of color, and in this case, um, Latinx students, in the suburban context, right? Um, we talk a lot about urban you know, schooling or maybe even rural uh, schooling and, and similar kind of issues of like poverty and, and struggle. But the suburbs often just get glossed over, uh, especially when it comes to students of color. So this is a fascinating uh, set of information here. What, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, it's, it's certainly a problem that so many folks in education and beyond education actually just assume that suburban schools and suburban school districts are quote unquote good schools, quality schools. Um, so many folks just, you know, they go to the internet and look at the school's rankings and everything looks great. And it's a problem in many ways, especially in this case with regards to the actual quality of education being delivered to students in those schools, particularly those students who are often marginalized. Uh, the, the urban, suburban lines have blurred quite a bit. We have gentrification in various cities. We have you know sprawling suburbs that have various uh, economic classes within them now. So that old traditional mindset of like, oh, the, the urban schools are where the black and brown kids are and the suburban schools are where the white kids are and the suburban schools are good quality schools and those those urban schools need reform and all that, you know, that's that's, outdated for sure. And it's much more complex than that. It, it's always been more complex than that, but especially now, I really feel for those students. I really feel for particularly students of color who are going to schools where they are um, in the numerical minority. We've spoken on this show before previously, I think maybe a few times, uh, various stories about like segregation within schools when it comes to who's in the AP and honors classes and who's not. We've spoken, I think we had a story maybe two years ago um, that was from USA Today where they profiled particularly black students in suburban schools and their experiences. And this really 
resonates in that sense, similar to those previous stories where these are students who are not feeling like they are being seen. They're not feeling like they are being supported the same as their white counterparts. And they are really having to, to try to navigate a, a, a racist and complex system and I just really, really feel for those students. If anybody's watching or listening and you work in a suburban school, quote unquote suburban school, if you work in a school where you know students of color are the numerical minority, I, I, I really hope you and I, I trust you've done some reflection about how your school is serving those students because it's I really feel for 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 these kids because I and I think Jeff, you spoke about this in, for yourself too. Um, I remember being one of the only black kids in my AP classes and just how isolating that feels. I happen to teach now at a school that's primarily um, black and Latinx, um, primarily, not entirely. And one student that I have, she recently wrote a personal narrative is, is some of the um, learning that we we're doing. And her personal narrative, she wrote about one year that she had in elementary school where because of family situations, she had to go to this uh, all white school in um, not not anywhere near our district or our, or our region, but uh, she was the only black girl in her class. And her personal narrative was just heartbreaking, heartbreaking. She's, I think she was in third grade at that time. And, and just through her writing, I could see that she's still, still severely hurt by those experiences that she had. And it just broke my heart to read that and to think about how difficult school is is period for a young person, but especially if you feel that you know you are being treated differently because of your racial background. If if folks are thinking that what you know some of these students in in this article talked about like teachers thinking they're lazy because they're quiet, or um, you know talked about opportunity hoarding, like all these advanced classes and advanced offerings being being taken up by white families who are perhaps more confident in in navigating the system. It's just really, really sad in that sense. And one thing that stood out to me in this story is that one of the kids was like, we got hella stories. And I'm like, ain't that right? I bet you they could go on and on about different experiences they have with different teachers and uh, different uh, school staff. And it's just heartbreaking. And I, I hope, I hope we are entering a, a time where we have more honest conversations about the fact that like our our typical view of schools as being like, you know, suburban versus urban, whatever is is uh too oversimplified and and we definitely need more research on the experiences of students of color in these quote unquote like good high performing schools yeah uh yeah definitely agree with that and uh, you know it does raise these just sort of like existential questions around like what do we mean when we say things like urban versus suburban right and and do those terms have any uh, relevance today in the same way that they once did, right? And you know, th there's plenty of places across the country where really the really the place where where races are coming together in public schools is primarily in the suburbs and not in the cities, because in many cases, city schools are so almost entirely segregated. At least there are so few white students, right? Maybe there are different types of students of color who are attending schools together, but the sort of racial isolation or isolation of 
students of color and white students is really profound um, in a lot of urban cores now, just given how things go, right? The white folks who are left in the cities have money and either go to the very few, you know, sort of elite exam schools um, or, you know, or they go to private school, right? Um, or their families don't have kids, right, uh, at that stage in, in their life. So, um, you know, and then we see in the suburbs or the, you know, quote unquote suburbs, right, lots of folks who used to be in the city, but because of gentrification and housing prices and all that, have now moved out to the suburbs and the same kind of issues, right? Poverty, lack of access to services, et cetera, have just moved locations, right? Um, and so I think it, it is maybe time, Manuel, or, or part of what this, um, what, what Gabriel Rodriguez's uh, research maybe can help us think a little bit about is even just like the language that we use and the lens we use to look at educational issues in America and like where these things are concentrated, right? Because I don't think many people necessarily think of, hey, where are students of color coming into direct, you know, confrontation with a primarily white educational workforce white students and families who are, you know, opportunity hoarding and systems that were not built for them that are, you know, not, not equipped currently to address their needs, right? And a lot of people think, well, that's the, you know, America's failing urban schools, right? Well, you know what? It's also a lot of America's <laughs> um, suburban schools with, with at least ostensibly plenty of resources to do better. So, um, it's, it's a fascinating uh, piece, uh, you know, kind of a, a nice nuanced way to look at uh, the landscape of American schools, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for me, it just helps also confirm how obvious it is that we have educational inequity across the system. Because when you think of other public goods, I, you know, when I think, for example, like post offices, like I don't think we have conversations about like post offices in the suburbs versus post offices in the inner city. Like, I, I don't know. I've never heard talk like that. But it, with schooling, it's kind of just assumed that like, oh, yeah, schools aren't the same. And the ones out there in the suburbs traditionally have better funding and better systems and better all that. And the ones in the cities are like a wreck. And we've known this for so long. At least we've had these conversations for so long that the school system itself is, is inherently unequal. Yeah. Here we are still in 2021 trying to figure out what to do about it and how to, how to affect change in such a way. And in this case, the lines have been blurred anyway. So how do we make sure that every public school, how do we make sure that no matter the district, no matter the state, that Whatever school your child goes to is a high quality school where your child is seen, where your child is valued, where your child has um, opportunity to engage in whatever offerings are there, whether they be advanced placement courses or whether they be certain extracurriculars. Like, How do we make sure that every family feels confident that when they send their little one off to school, that little one is going to be valued to the same degree as everybody else. And that little one is gonna feel good about the services they're getting and their their future outlook. I think that's that's the big question. I think we're so far from from that reality of of every school, no matter where you are at, your kid's gonna be your kid's gonna be honored. I think we got a lot of work to do in that front, for sure. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. All right, folks, that about does it for today's do now. We hope you learned some new lexicon, picked up some new vocab terms. And uh, up next, we're gonna have a conversation with Joe Truss, who is back in the building. Uh, you don't wanna miss that. Stay tuned.
What up, AOTA family? Now, we really appreciate your support. Some of you have reached out uh, letting us know that you would love to leave a five-star review and do a little write-up, but you can't seem to find it on Apple Podcasts because it's kind of buried there. So just so you know, if you are using Apple Podcasts, if you go to your library, which has all the shows that you follow, if you click on our show and then scroll, you got to scroll all the way down to the bottom, at least on my phone, on my version, that's, that's how you do it. Scroll all the way down to the bottom, then you'll see the reviews there, and uh, you could leave us that five stars. And if you have a moment to write a little a little write-up, that would be great. These sorts of things help us show up in more educator searches when folks are out there trying to find podcasts to listen to about education and your support goes a long way. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us today. And we have uh, back again, a wonderful, incredible guest with us. Uh, if you have been a longtime listener or watcher of our show, you've seen him before almost one year ago. Uh, we had this amazing educator on um, to talk about all of the incredible work he's been doing, leading a school in San Francisco um, and bringing the work of anti-racism and dismantling white supremacy culture to his practice. And uh, shortly after we had Joe Truss on with us for the first time, uh, you know, the entire national landscape around discussing issues of, of race and justice uh, shifted monumentally, of course, with uh, the killing of, of George Floyd um, and the unleashing of national protests uh, across the country. So we are very excited to have back with us again today for the second time, uh, Joe Trust. Joe, welcome back to All the Above. Uh, what's up, Jeff? What's up, Manuel? Pleasure to be here. Lovely to be back a second time. And, you know, anytime I get to uh, talk with two brothers, create space for uh, our voices, it's a good day. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, folks, let me tell you a little bit more about uh, Joe Truss. He is a middle school principal committed to dismantling white supremacy culture in schools. He brings 16 years of educational experience and originally grew up in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood. A first-generation college student, he graduated from UC Berkeley before attending Tufts University, where he got his teaching credential. He began as a high school Spanish teacher in East Oakland. After then attending UC Berkeley's Principal Leadership Institute program, he started his journey of school leadership and now has been the principal of Visitacion Valley Middle School in San Francisco Unified for six years. There he has worked to support project-based learning, restorative practices, and reading intervention. In 2018, he started his blog, culturallyresponsiveleadership.com, where he writes about school leadership and racial equity. He also offers workshops on anti-racism and provides team coaching. During the past year, he has trained over 3,000 educators and has presented keynotes to nearly 10,000. He works to empower educators to engineer for equity. He is married to a high school teacher and is a father of two and very soon here to be father of three. Uh, once again, welcome back, Joe Truss. And I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, Joe Truss back in the building. So, so glad to have you here again. And last time we had you, that episode posted on the eve of the killing of George Floyd. And 
And on the eve of the summer of, of reckoning over racial justice in the wake of the killings of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd. And of course, the pandemic was still in its early phases last time we spoke. So when you look back on this, this last year, what are some of your big reflections and, and where do you think we've maybe progressed a bit? And where do you think maybe we haven't really seen much progress? Um, you know, I, mean, I think it, my memory of, of the summer, not just of the killings, right, and the murders, right, and that's the traumatic memory, right, but one of the memories I also hold on to is the fact that we saw hordes of white folks in the streets day after day after day. And for me, as a person of color, that says something because, you know, we've been in the streets, right, for decades, right, something goes down, we're in the streets, right, Um but the fact to see masses of white folks, right? You look at a city like Portland where they were just like a hundred days straight in the streets, right? So for me, that's progress, right? We also got a very clear definition of what performative allyship or performative wokeness is, right? You know, we maybe talked about that a little bit, but we saw how quickly uh, folks got active and excited and all of a sudden, you know, they changed their profile picture back. You know, they, put, they started posting pictures of dogs and memes um, <laughs> they started reading another book on the New York best time seller list. Um, and they started, they, they moved on. Right. So I do think in many ways, uh, uh, we hit, we made some jumps, but we kind of got comfortable there. Right. And that's kind of how it is. Right. The, uh, the, the system will find this new equilibrium. That's as far as they'll allow us to change and kind of sit there. Right. You know, we're, you know, my, my question to that is, are white people still in the streets? Are we still adding holidays to the calendar? Right. Are we are we still buying black right as a as a collective right um, and you know uh, as as a glorious as it is to see Sister Kamala um, get elected this also opens up this idea of are we in a post racial America again right much like when Obama was elected right and you hear people saying that already and using that against us right and my my, my best exhibit A is did you see the white people in the Capitol I saw okay. it. Okay, did you, did you, okay, was that before or was that after the summer? Was that before or was that after George Floyd's death, Breonna Taylor's murder, right? Are we still trying to get justice for Breonna Taylor, right? I mean, so that, for me, that says kind of where we're at, right? And, and yes, now, you know, we've, read, we've all read some Kendi, right? Uh, or we've heard about it, or we've heard about D'Angelo, right? Um, and there's some conversations that are moving, right? But if we can still have somebody go in um, and murder a whole bunch of Asian American brothers and sisters, right, then we can see how far we've progressed, right? And we could still um, uh, uh, still determine whether that whether we should or shouldn't be doing it, how should we should act, how we shouldn't act. Uh, it shows us kind of where we're at. But the fact that that can happen and we understand now collectively what white supremacy is, and we can say white supremacy when they storm the Capitol, when a bunch of Asian Americans are targeted, right? That's some progress for sure. The question is, what do we do with that, right? It has the policy shifted, have the, have the practices shifted, have the outcomes shifted, right? I mean, that's it. Ask the kids, ask the most marginalized kids, have we progressed? It don't really matter what we have to say, right? Let's ask the children, has anything changed? They'll tell us. Yeah, Joe, I really appreciate your, your words there. And, um, you know, I think leaving us with some profound questions to continue thinking about, right? Not only in terms of, you know, what work lies ahead for us, but where are we now? And how much progress have we made? And you know, sort of what needs to be done to continue to push um, towards uh, a racially just society and and world. Um, and as an educator, who I think it's fair to say has really you know 
put his mouth where his money is or his money where his mouth is, however that saying goes, um, around doing the work of addressing anti-racism in schools and, and in your practice um, through the hosting of your many trainings and conferences on dismantling white supremacy culture. I wonder if you can share with us maybe some reflections on, you know, sort of what you've seen over the last year in engaging with educators across the country um, on these, you know, of course, very complex issues. And, you know, especially in a world where lots of educators uh, last spring really became inspired to, you know, to do some of the stuff you you just said, right, to change their Facebook profile picture or to go buy that, you know, that candy book and, and start reading for the first time. You know, what, what have you seen uh, in your engagements with educators that, that perhaps gives you some hope? Um, and also, I hear uh, uh, through the grapevine that you may have another one of these conferences uh, coming up soon as well. So feel free to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, primarily we are hearing from folks of color more than we were before, in my, in my perspective, at least, right? Um, you know, there was a time when these conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion were being led by um, and dominated by white voices, right? And even if there were voices of color, folks still gravitated to the white voices, right? And our, our majority of our educational force is white, right? So they were listening to white folks, but that has shifted so that there are so many folks of color who have been doing it much longer than I've been doing it, right? Um, and now we're listening to them, right? So I think that's one shift that, that gives me hope because if we're listening to the right voices, right? If we're listening to black women, if we're listening to trans folks, if we're listening to immigrant folks, we're gonna hear something different, right? And if we allow ourselves to be changed, we could be changed, right? We just need to stop listening to the voices that, that make us comfortable, right? With our privilege. Um, now with that, I do see white folks asking more questions, right? There's a process with that, but before there was not as much inquiry, right? There wasn't as much curiosity. There wasn't as much as, okay, well, look, what you want me to do then, right? Like, okay, well, that let's talk about that. Maybe I don't have the answer. Maybe you need to go talk to another white person about that, but you're asking a question, right? You're saying, what book should I read, right? So I do think that gives me a lot of hope, right? And I think along with the fact that now we have white folks talking to white folks about racism and anti-racism, we're with that seeing more protected sacred space for folks of color, right? That affinity space, we know we know we need it because we go find it. And if you're not going to give it to us in the meeting, then we're going to talk in the park a lot. We're going to catch it at the water cooler. We're going to be texting at nighttime about the meeting. You're texting during the meeting, having our own virtual affinity space during your other space. So the fact that that space is becoming sanctioned, right, and allowed, right, in the space for us to really get busy, um, I, I definitely see some hope there. The fact that, you know, some folks did the one and done professional development, they checked the box, but some people are like, no, we're doing this all year. We're doing this for multiple years. And as I work with some of my um, clients and, and, and partners across the country, people are engaging in year long work, right? And this idea of like, no, we're going to talk about this every month. No, we're going to do this. And there's going to be a meeting on top of this. And there's an opt-in meeting and there's a book club, which it needs to be, right? It needs to be that robust that uh, people are, they're going deep everywhere, right? And I also think the other thing that gives me hope is people are starting to have a, a, a more uh, a deeper vocabulary with these issues, right? Before, maybe they understood diversity and maybe affirmative action, right? Okay, like in Rosa Parks, right? Maybe those three things, that was the, 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 the beginning and the end of racial, uh, racial uh, equity work. But the fact that folks now can talk about, like I was saying, white supremacy, folks can talk about anti-racism, folks can talk a little bit about critical race theory, 
the fact that those are in the lexicon now say something. Because then once we have some shared language, now we can talk about those words, now we can talk about those issues, then maybe we can get to some action, right? Um, and, you know, people are, some people are getting to the action part, right? So they're overhauling their curriculum. They're actually looking at it, right? The fact that I have math teachers in my training saying, Joe, this is cool, but what can I do in my math class? And then I slide them a Rethinking Mathematics book, right? Uh, or, or I slide them some work from Dr. V, who you had on the show past, because I know she gets busy with math work too, right? Um, I can get them that kind of stuff in, right? They can do something with that because now they know why they should be changing their stuff, right? I mean, that that's it, right? Um, so that gives me a lot of hope. Of course, there's more work to be done, right? And the fact that folks of color are feeling, you know, more centered, right? And more, a little access to more healing, you know, that, that gives me some hope too. That's lovely. <clears throat> That's lovely. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, but um, the work of dismantling white supremacy is neither quick nor simple. And it's, it's rarely done without some, some kind of pushback. And we know you've been doing a lot of work, especially over this past year. And we're wondering if you could talk to us what some of that about what some of that pushback has looked like, how that, how some of that resistance has perhaps manifested. And in particular, if you've noticed any differences in, in what that pushback or resistance has looked like coming from white educators versus coming from educators mm -hmm. of color. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, I think, you know, before I go race specific, in general, there's always gonna be some defensiveness and some pushback, right? Because this idea of, you know, this work is cool, but this isn't for me right? This is for the real racists out there, right? Or this is, we just need to change the system or society. I don't got to change anything I'm doing or change anything I'm thinking about. So I do think that resistance is ever present um, because it's hard to look in the mirror and say like, you know what? I, I perpetuate white supremacy culture. I, I, I have some immediate racist thoughts, right? Because if we've been conditioned, of course, we've got those immediate racist thoughts. The question is, what do we do with that? How do we problematize that? That's general, right? Now, if we're going to go specific, right? And now you see this in both places, but let's focus on white folks first, right? So what I see, the resistance I see from white folks, I mean, one is like, you see like all out sabotage, right? So let's just be, let's be real, right? So you got people who are, who are with the program and they're trying to learn and try to grow. You got people who are unsure and you got some people who are just like, I'm not with this. Now, when people opt into a training, that's one thing. Okay, cool. I signed up. I'm, I know what it is. I read the outcomes. I'm here for it, right? Um, when you show up to a place where everybody didn't sign up for, but maybe the leader signed up or the equity team signed us all up and you're here and I show up to those spaces, it's a different kind of resistance, right? So some of those folks, they read the agenda before the meeting, right? And they already firing off emails the night before, you know, and I know what it's like to get them late night, 11 p.m. emails and <laughs> fucking all caps, right? <laughs> right? Trying to sabotage, right? Because like they understand that this is political organizing work, right? So if we're if if they see that we are on this plan of change and they don't want that, and and if they're really trying to sabotage, then they're gonna get their organizing on too, right? So they're they're linking up and having conversations with other folks. They're 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 quoting their sources, be they uh, uh, James McWhorter or uh, <laughs> Fox News or Prager University. They got their sources too, right? With doctorates and everything, right? Or no doctorates, just a just a YouTube channel, but. <laughs> Um, they will quote those places. And then now the folks, what I notice, the folks in the middle, obviously they're not sure what they're going to do. They may be intimidated by these people. They listen to those folks too, right? So that resistance shows up or, you know, you're in a meeting in a Zoom and people drop some stuff in the chat, like, I don't know what this is all about anyway, right? Okay. Oh, this is the, the third black woman that we're listening to, the third black woman uh, book quote, 
are we going to hear from many white speakers now? Like it's those subtle kind of little things, right? Those little digs, right? Um, so yes, the resistance is there. And that's during, right? Then it's after. It's like, oh, we did this and now they're trying to sabotage it after the fact. In between, they just try to like maintain some sort of status quo, right? And I think for me, you got to make the comparison between that and white rage, right? I mean, let's, it's not just defensiveness, right? You know, if, if it was just defensive, defensiveness, it would be like, I'm just going to back up and not really engage and I don't know, something. If it's like, I want to get that dude fired, right? I want to write them up. I want to go slam them in the in the tabloid newspaper, right? I want to go find the internet trolls and, and sick them on them, right? Like that kind of stuff. That's white rage of trying to take folks' power away, right? Same thing as folks being up in the Capitol, same thing of all the other forms of white rage. It's just, it's just a little way to kind of, to you know, I heard this great quote of uh, if, if you can't pistol whip somebody, then you're going to pencil whip them, right? And, and this idea of like, I'm going to find that one little clause in the contract or in the HR handbook and use that. And I'm going to go to HR and HR is going to ride with me, right? Because they are trying to keep status quo too, right? And it's, it's a very... Um, crafty way to resist, right? But they're using these footholds that are built into the system that allow them to maintain power. Okay, that's so that's white folks, right? Folks of color, right? You got the folks who are like, well, one, um, I shouldn't be here because I'm a person of color, citizens before me, right? I can't, I can't do racist things. Now, can you be racist? You don't have political, institutional, positional authority, power. Okay, maybe you can't do as much, but you could say some racist shit. And you could treat people poorly and you could dehumanize folks, right? Um, folks of color, sometimes we struggle to accept that we perpetuate it, right? So there's some resistance there. Now, the hard part is when the folks know how to use that, right? So I, this is an interesting thing, right? So now white folks who are resistant love this moment when a person, when that one person of color on the staff, two or three, say that one thing like, well, I don't really know about this. You know, I really don't really, I don't know if I really believe in race. And they'll be like, see, he said it. So-and-so said it, we don't got to do this shit anymore. I'm out too, right? Um, and it, it, those small nuances, right, are, 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 are what we have to kind of manage, right, on a staff, whether we're, whether we're a colleague or a leader or, or, or a trainer or whatever. So um, no matter what, it's going to be resistance. Because like, the thing is that um, we're all benefiting from it, right? I mean, that's the problem, right? Like, unless we're talking about people that are really on the streets, if we're really talking about people who really don't have advanced degrees, right, who really don't have jobs that are high paying, we all complicit in this process, right? We all determine uh, how much we're really going to ride for folks or not, right? And it's hard for us to look in the mirror, especially when we are folks that may have come from underserved, marginalized, oppressed backgrounds, right? It's like, well, I can't do it because I came from there. It's like, no, I could still, I could still suspend a kid, right? I could still, uh, uh, tell you that your English is wrong. I could still tell you that your slang is inappropriate. I could do all these things, right? I could still tell you that you need to pass this stupid ass test, right? I could, all, all these things I can still do. It don't matter my color or my, or my class background, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you're, you're speaking to that, Joe. And I, I have found, at least personally, that the, the very sort of nuanced line that you're, <laughs> that you're talking about there, right? With understanding both the kind of like structural power dynamics that are at play in racism that distinguish between the type of power that can be exercised by white individuals and groups in this country versus, you know, individuals and groups of color in this country. 
um, is important to note. And at the same time, I, you know, I'm not actually uh, certain about the demographics of the educator force in San Francisco Unified. Here in Los Angeles Unified, I mean, educators of color are the majority of the system at, at basically all levels, right? In the classroom, among principals, among district leadership. And, uh, and when I compare, you know, the realities of what's happening with students and students of color here in Los Angeles to what's happening with my, you know, friends who work in education, say in Minneapolis, where white educators are overwhelmingly the, you know, the majority uh, among the ranks, the actual outcomes and experience for students of color isn't all that different, right? And so there, there is this interesting, uh, you know, perhaps a little more complex version of doing anti-racist work that needs to be done in context where educators of color are the majority and where maybe the majority of those folks are coming to the table really wanting to do actively anti-racist work. And yet we have, you know, the structures and outcomes that, that we have now. And let so, me, let me, let me, yeah, let please me jump in on that. All right. So yeah. I, I love that example because if, which, right. Cause if you said, if the, if the kids are generally the same, demographics of said class, right? Still both in a city will say, and the, but the educators are different and the cities are different, but the outcomes are the same. What's that say? Right. And I do think that's, that's enough data to start making a couple conclusions. Right. And you know, what it says is that it is about the policy. It's about the practices, right. It's about the habits, right. It's about the routines. Right. And that's why I love looking at, you know, both uh, critical race theory and white supremacy culture, because it forces us to now unpack and analyze the systems, right? And something I push a lot of times in the trainings I do um, that I love from Kendi's work is he talks about anti-racist policies, right? He says, okay, cool. The ideas and your beliefs, that's cool. That's one piece, but it's about the policies and the outcomes, right? Because if a system and a policy is racist, it, it is almost foolproof, right? Or it is almost anti-racist proof, right? Because you can have your belief, right? I believe all these kids are equal and they deserve this. And I believe in joy and all that kind of stuff. But the policy says that I should do this when a student is not achieving, right? Uh, if, a, if a black student is not doing well in class, right? I'm supposed to try a couple of times, do some response to intervention as many times as I can. And then I'm supposed to try to reach out to families um, and try to set up some meetings and then I'm supposed to see what happens. And then when those things don't happen, fast track to special ed, okay, right? Policy, right? There's no policy that says, hey, you know what, you need to slow down. Step one, what are you doing, right? Step two, what's in your curriculum? Step three, what's going on? What's the student's, what's the student's racial background? What's your, what's your background and what's going, what may be going on there, right? What's the student's relationship with uh, the school and the institution of schooling, right? Like, can you imagine if there were 20 questions that we needed to ask ourselves before we uh, identified or over-identified or determined whether a black student is gonna go into special education or not, right? That's a policy, right? Let alone other students too, let's just say black students, right? Um, if you had a policy like that or a better one that someone can come up with, someone almost could have a racist belief but have to use a policy <laughs> to move through that would correct for that, right? But the issue is we haven't really got to the policy. So your first question around where do I see hope and like wh where have we made progress? We, we has a lot of belief conversation, right? We had a whole lot of declarations, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to policy, when we start talking about taking exam schools away from rich, wealthy, 
students, right? White students or white and Asian students, depending on the city that you're in. When we start talking about those kinds of policies, detracking, getting rid of AP classes, right? Saying that there's no suspension for defiance. All of a sudden, right? People start losing their goddamn mind, right? Who don't want that to change. But also it allows, and now if it goes through, it allows for folks who may even have that racist belief to be like, oh, so you mean there's no advanced class I could put this kid in now? Like he doesn't exist? Like, I, I can't, what do you mean? We don't have honors anymore. You know what I mean? Like, what, what do you mean there's no special school to send the good kids to and to, to leave the other kids? I mean, when do, then we might have a different outcome, right? So my, my point there is that connection between the two schools, right? And school districts, it, it's the policy, right? It's the way we make decisions. It's how funding moves, right? It's how taxes work, all of those pieces, right? Um, until we get there, the outcome. Kendi says the outcomes are not going to shift. And we know that, right? Because pe people follow the policy, right? And some people get busy and, and they're subversive, but that's a much smaller amount of folks. Most people follow the policy. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, you know, you mentioned Dr. V earlier in this, in this conversation, and that's something that gives me hope because I think about myself as a teacher and when I was learning how to teach and how many of these racist policies and behaviors were sort of embedded in teacher training and the expectation of like, that's, that's good teaching, that's what you're supposed to do. And how much unlearning I had to do as a teacher to detangle my own practice from the the culture of white supremacy, which is all, all in and through education. And one thing that this pandemic has done is led to a lot of people sort of questioning whether or not this could be a, a opportunity or a moment to reimagine some of these structures that we have in education. I think back to the conversations we've had, um, us three here about grading, you know, going back a year ago and, and giving A's back when the pandemic first started. And a lot of that reimagining talk and a lot of that those questions around like, what can school look like when this pandemic is over? It seems like a lot of that has sort of shifted to the wayside as these reopening debates have, have taken place and district after district now ushering students back into the building conveniently in time for standardized testing. So we're wondering if you could talk to us about your uh, context in terms of your your school, your school system. Um, what's this looking like at, at your in your um, area and what about what what about testing in 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 your district or or at your school? What's what's going to be the approach? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's still getting mixed messages, right? I mean, we definitely we got the clear message that testing was coming back. Okay, <laughs> that that was that was clear at a certain point, right? Um, and that we were still going to have to do it. Now, how much of it? Don't know, right? So, I mean. You know, I'm also aware that there's lots of movements, right? Some are on the ground, right? Amongst maybe the parents and the kids and the educators, and some are at maybe a district level, right? A, a movements of pushing back or advocating, right? To say, well, we advocate for being held exempt from testing this year for these reasons, right? So there's pushes for that. And I believe that folks are waiting to see what's gonna happen, right? And are we gonna get that waiver or not? Right. I do know that uh, we're testing English or English learner students like that's been a much a pretty, pretty clear message. Right. Which is kind of strange. Right. To say, like, probably the students who have the least amount of access to grade level in English instruction, probably the, the, the last students we should be testing right now. Uh, I feel like the other groups we've said that it's coming, but we don't really know how soon. Right. And the question of like, is it really going to work on the computer or is it not? Right. I don't know, right? The messages are mixed, right? I do say, I will say that from the educators I talk to and the leaders I talk to, rarely uh, are folks really with 
thinking that we should be doing testing this year in general, and then in testing in general, right? Um, I do think what's interesting though, is like we got to really unpack testing though, right? So it is, it, we are propping up a system that's broken, right? A, a broken system of assessment, right? And this idea of going back to keep it alive, right? Like we're trying to keep it alive, right? Right in time to, to keep it alive, right? So we're, and we're financially supporting this like industrial complex of testing, right? That has not really served us really, right? I mean, for me, I got to take it back to eugenics, right? So if eugenics came on the scene to pseudo-scientifically, okay, um, argue and prove that everybody, that all folks of color were inferior to, to white folks. And that's, that was the point, okay? And they created metric systems to show that, to justify all the racism that was already built into the policy and the systems, right? Then we understand why, why the IQ test, right? And uh, that can, now we can derive from that the SAT test and the AP test and our testing system and our tracking system. Then we understand that like those metrics and those systems end up being a self-fulfilling prophecy to maintain a certain racial hierarchy, right? So this idea of keeping it alive is to make sure that the folks who were winning keep winning, right? right? This idea of like, well, what are we gonna do similar, right? Like what happens if we take the exam school away? Then the folks who were winning, they were on a fast track to winning, and they knew that if they went to that elementary school and they took that summer program in second grade, they were going to be at that 12th grade exam school going to Harvard one day, right? Same thing with testing, right? Like we're, we're keeping it alive to maintain a power structure that is intact, right? Um, so word on the street, though, right, is that you can opt out. Right. You know, given that I'm still an employee of some places, I, I, I will say I'm not going to say what people should do. But I will say that I've heard that you can opt out. That's a, something that a citizen can do. I'm a parent of a, of a kid as well, or a few kids, and one day they'll be in schools. And I, I will have that option myself as well. What I, what I would propose and, and, and have folks think about is what would happen if we all opted out? OK, what would happen if masses of people said, you know what? And they did this in Seattle. Hello. Right. What if they just said, hey, you know what? We're just all not with it. We don't believe in it. We're not going to hold it up no more. We're not going to prop it up. We're not going to uh, uh, be with that program anymore. What would happen then, right? Because it, now it's interesting. Like when we had this conversation last year, all year, man, well, right around grading, people always say, well, what are we going to do if we don't give them A's? Good fucking question, right? Let's explore that, right? We weren't exploring that when we had to give them A, B's and C's like they were meat, meats and restaurants, right? Now we can explore that question. Same thing with testing. So if we're not going to assess them with this standardized way, what do we do? And some people already been exploring this performance tests, exhibitions, right? Um, uh, culminating uh, 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 debates and, and deliberations at the end of their 10th grade or whatever grade year, right? That being able to explore that of like, what should we be measuring and how do we know, right? And how do we know, as opposed to some other folks who are not on the ground, not in our context, not from our background, those folks deciding what we should know and how we should be measured, only so that it maintains the same racial class hierarchy. But let's 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 be done with that, and we can explore some of these questions, right? I mean, that that's the beauty, right? Of like, if we're talking about policy, if we shift the policy of testing, right, and how we assess kids maybe the outcomes might shift. And I'm, I'm at least interested in exploring that because maybe we'll get to something different because if we just keep beating our head against the same wall, you know, and 
and pretend like we're still in no shot left behind. We ain't in no, it ain't 2003 no more. It ain't 2007 no more, right? Like we're not in that land. We can let go and start dreaming again. Like we were dreaming more so probably before the 2000s. So yeah, man, what if we all opted out? I'm, 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 I would love to know. Mm. Uh, that is a beautiful question. Uh, <laughs> and a profound one, I think, for all educators and all parents to think about, right? What would happen? if we made decisions like that and, and, and what new realizations might we come to. Uh, so Joe, uh, we hear you have a, uh, another Dismantling White Supremacy Culture um, conference coming up in early June. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, that conference and how folks can learn more? Oh man, no, no doubt. I'm so excited about this, man. So last year, you know, we started with a two day conference turned into a second part in July. You know, since then I've, I've hit like almost hit my 3,000 mark of 3,000 folks going through this uh, foundational training. And folks always ask, well, what's the part two? You know, where where is the re-up for this this training? And I got it, right? So this this summer, June 14th to 18th, we're doing a whole week. We're not playing around no more, no, no two days. We're gonna do the part one on Monday, Tuesday. And everybody who's been through the part one gets to come back for the part two, Wednesday through Friday. We're gonna have a, a Keynotes by Bettina Love, keynote by Goldie Muhammad, um, and a whole list of workshops, seven workshop presenters, a whole bunch of cool stuff. You know, this is not your uh, typical PD by any means, right? We're definitely going there. Um, you could learn about it um, at uh, www.dismantlewsc.com, or you can find it also at my website um, at uh, culturalresponsiveleadership.com. Sign up, attend, bring your team. Don't come alone, no. Come with your people because we, we, we're definitely getting busy. All right. That sounds incredible. Uh, bringing out the, the heavy hitters there, uh, Joe. Um, so shout out to uh, Bettina Love and uh, Goldie Muhammad. And uh, one more time, Joe, what's the what's the website there? We'll be sure to link that um, underneath uh, here yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. What, get, what's that website? You get the information and buy tickets at Dismantle WSC for white supremacy culture, dismantlewsc.com, or you can find it on my website, culturallyresponsiveleadership.com too. Joe Trust, want to thank you so much again uh, for joining us today uh, for the second time now on All the Above. Uh, such a pleasure to have you here. And um, I think, you know, every time you come on, um, you push our thinking, and I'm sure um, the folks in our audience uh, would, would say the same. So appreciate you being here and uh, we, we'd love to have you back again sometime in the future. Uh, best of luck with your uh, upcoming Dismantling White Supremacy Conference uh, coming up in early June and uh, best of luck with your new uh, addition to the family also <laughs> coming up in June. Uh, it's gonna be quite a month for you, I'm sure. Uh, but thanks so much for being with us today and um, Folks, that's it for today's seminar. Next up is our class dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for class dismissed. Jeff, who are we shouting out today? Well, Manuel, today uh, we're shouting out a whole bunch of people. We're shouting out all the 12th graders out there. We're shouting out all the eighth graders out there. We're shouting out all the fifth graders out there as well. 
Um, really, the, the students who in our school system are in their final year at their school, right? They're the big dogs on campus, right? This is their senior year or they're getting ready to culminate and move on to high school or step up to middle school. And these are the group of kids who've, you know, they've kind of just like drawn the short straw, right? Like they, they got their last year in their current school to be the year of COVID, right? And have a year that was kind of robbed from them in terms of some of those experiences that make your final year of school at any school a special time, or at least hopefully a special time for, for the kids. So we want to give a shout out to all of them because you've been through a lot, you've struggled and persevered through it. And now at least here in California, we know many other places around the country are, are kind of on a similar trajectory, but at least some of these students are gonna get an opportunity to do some version of in-person schooling, right? A hybrid thing for, for a good chunk of the next couple of months, the last couple of months of, of their big year. And we hope that, you know, uh, despite these difficult times, that this last push and the opportunity to come in and see some of your friends and see or meet for the first time in person some of your teachers uh, just brings them some sense of, of closure, some sense of peace um, from what's been a really difficult year. So shout out to all the uh, all the, the old head students on their campus, our 12th graders, 8th graders, and 5th graders across the state of California here and across the country who have, um, you know, kept your heads up and uh, done a great job persevering through what is just a really difficult time. And so we, we see you, props to you. I hope this last couple months is, is great and brings you what you need. And best of luck on your next exciting steps, um, you know, come, come next year as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And a personal shout out to my seniors. My seniors have hung in there. They left campus as juniors and some of them are finally able to have the choice of coming back for a limited in-person as, as the school year wraps up. And they really have just, they've hung in there big time and shout out to them for sure. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a senior during this this COVID year. Just, just remarkable, remarkable that um, our students across the country have really just done their best to hang in there during during such tough times. So shout out to all of y'all. Shout out to our, our listeners and our viewers. We hope you appreciated this episode. If so, do consider giving us that, that five-star review. It goes a long way. And of course, you could watch all of our content, all of our previous episodes at aotashow.com and um, look beneath this episode for links to more from Joe Truss and, and other uh, items that we mentioned during, during this episode. All right, folks? So we will catch you next time.